Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Katie Orr. In this week for Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, Judy Chu represents a portion of L.A. County in Congress, where she developed a reputation as a bridge builder, overcoming differences in race, class, and immigration status. That's right. Judy Chu was the first Chinese-American woman elected to Congress back in... 2009. We'll talk with her about that, as well as her working class roots and cutting her political teeth in the anti-war movement at UCLA. Lots of things uh, to talk about with her. But first, Katie Orr, it's been a busy week up in Sacramento. The recall is gone behind us now. And so the governor has turned to signing or vetoing bills he didn't want to touch before the recall. Um, And he uh, Wednesday, kind of a mixed day for workers. He uh, signed uh, AB 701, which is sort of a landmark bill in a way, gives warehouse workers for companies like Amazon more protections, transparency on uh, metrics and that uh, nasty algorithm they use to fire people who aren't very productive. And that was a big win for the author, uh, Lorena Gonzalez. Right. Um, And I don't know that this is something um, that she necessarily counted on him to sign. I I think throughout his tenure, we've seen uh, Newsom pooled between union workers and tech. Uh, You saw that with the fight over AB5, whether or not gig workers could be classified as employees versus contractors. And so you're never quite certain what he's going to do on this uh, particular bill, he felt compelled to come down on the side of the workers. Yeah, I mean, and this is uh, an issue that some of the horror stories that came out, you know, workers urinating in water bottles because they didn't have time for a restroom break. I mean, just egregious things like that. I mean, it really is hard to ignore. Especially during the pandemic when so much, so many of us are shut in inside and are counting on places like Amazon to get our basic needs and things were just, you know, buying out of boredom. Uh, Amazon workers did not get to stay home. They were the ones out there picking those things off the shelves. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of Lorena Gonzalez, she was not happy with a veto the governor also issued uh, yesterday, Wednesday, AB 616, which would have allowed farm workers to basically change the way uh, they choose their collective bargaining representatives would have allowed mail-in ballots. He vetoed that. Uh, said that it had, the bill had inconsistency and procedural issues, which is, uh, uh, I don't know quite what that means, but he's going to kick it back and uh, try to put a, put some of the ag labor groups together and, and, and come up with uh, something different that, you know, he'll find acceptable, but maybe not in an election year. 
Right. And I think this is interesting for labor unions because, of course, they just worked so hard to help him uh, beat back this recall. Uh, They spent millions of dollars, had tens of thousands of volunteers knocking on doors across the state and making phone calls. And for one of his first big, you know, post uh, recall actions to be vetoing a, a labor backed bill. They're not going to love that. Not, they don't love it. In <laughs> fact, the UFW, uh, which did help to fight the recall, was going to march from Tulare County to Sacramento, 260 miles, to, sort of to commemorate, well, to lobby him, but also to commemorate a march that Cesar Chavez did. Instead, well, they're taking a left turn and going to Napa to uh, the French Laundry, uh, which has become a popular site for people that want to rub his nose, the governor's nose, and the fact that he got caught dining without a mask. Um, So I think, you know, that restaurant is going to be used for many backdrops uh, for years to come, I suspect. Yeah, that story's never going away. Yeah. (laughs) should also mention the governor uh, on Wednesday signed a big package, $15 billion in different climate-related bills uh, in terms of uh, preventing wildfire fighting wildfires, money for drought issues. But you know, that mask issue came up in San Francisco as well, Katie, this week. London Breed, the mayor, got some blowback. She was found seen, I should say, not found. She was seen in a club, uh, the Black Cat, uh, a fun nightclub in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. And she was there with friends enjoying music. uh, And, you know, she didn't have a mask on while she was eating and drinking and, you know, maybe kind of dancing to the music a little bit. Uh, But unlike, you know, some politicians who have been defensive, she really kind of pushed back on the criticism. Oh, yeah. She, <laughs> she there's a video of it. And it is just it's I, it was great to watch. She was just saying, do you know who these musicians were? <laughs> these are like some of Tony, the best Tony, musicians. Tony, 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 of our time. Uh, of course, I was there. Of course, I was with my friends. We're all vaccinated. And she was talking about how unrealistic it is to expect people to perhaps, you know, cover their mouth in between sips or bites or whatever. She said, nobody does that. Uh, I'm vaccinated. And I think that that she doesn't want to do that. So uh, it's definitely a different uh, approach than we've seen some politicians take. Yeah. And, you know, San Francisco, under her leadership, has done remarkably well. I mean, I think we have about 80 percent vaccination rate, very high. I think we were the first big city in the country to reach uh, certain thresholds uh, of 70 percent, I think it was. And, you know, I think there's also mask fatigue. Uh, You know, people are just tired of it. And, you know, I I give her credit. I mean, I know there's, you know, certainly some criticism. I suppose you could say she's, you know, not consistent with the policies. But, you know, as she said, lay off with the fun police. You know, we have to live (laughs) our lives. And there are other things going on. We're going to have to live with this virus for a while. Right. And, you know, she also makes the point that you need to support the restaurants and the nightclubs that are a big part of the city's economy and that she's going to keep doing that. Yeah. Well, before we go to a break, Katie, I do want to acknowledge uh, passing of Scott Lay, uh, who was very well known around Sacramento. He's a passionate advocate for community colleges really loved delving into politics and policy around the Capitol, uh, did a daily newsletter. I'm talking about Scott Lay, uh, who died uh, at the age of 48. And you know, very very sad uh, for people who knew him well, and even those who just read his newsletter, The Nooner, every day. Right. I mean, as someone who didn't know him particularly well, but was certainly familiar with his work, uh, it's it's shocking to everybody here. He was such an entrenched part of the Capitol community. And 
again, even people who didn't have close relationships with him were just devastated. And I, our heart goes out to his family and friends. Absolutely. And he was good friends with people like Paul Mitchell, Mike Madrid, who've known him for years. And he was also a friend of Political Breakdown. He was a very, uh, very kind in promoting uh, the show. We appreciate that. And, you know, also just in terms of his bio, suffered severe asthma as a kid and then later became an advocate and a fundraiser for cystic fibrosis, which another lung-related disease for young kids. So our hearts go out to uh, his family and his friends. Uh, very sad, sad week. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by Los Angeles Congresswoman Judy Chu. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Katie Orr. And we're delighted to have with us today a political veteran who represents California's 27th congressional district. That's the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles County, including the cities of Pasadena, Claremont, and Monterey Park. She was the first Chinese-American woman elected to Congress, winning a special election to fill the seat left vacant by Hilda Solis when she became labor secretary in the Obama administration. Judy Chu, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. You have been, as I said, in Congress over a decade now. And uh, there's some tension, it seems, at the moment. What what else is new? It's Congress. But uh, at the moment, uh, there's the focus on the uh, $3.5 trillion bill that Democrats are pushing, as well as the trillion-dollar infrastructure agreement that was bipartisan. And there's all this discussion as progressives against moderates. And what's your take on what's happening right now? Well, uh There is a lot of tension, but it's because so much of us feel so strongly about doing something profound for the American people to reduce the income inequality, to provide the jobs that are needed, to make sure that um, we are able to provide a, a higher quality of life for folks who could have the peace of mind of having uh, paid family leave, uh, child care, as well as a, a child tax credit. Uh, these are things that we know will improve people's lives for the better. And the thing is that it's paid for. It's paid for by making the top 1%, the wealthiest in the country, corporations and the wealthiest persons pay their fair share of taxes 
right now we have 55 corporations that pay no federal income tax despite making $40 billion in profits. We think they should pay their fair share. Congresswoman, I wanted to ask you about another hot topic, um, and that is abortion and the possibility that the United States Supreme Court might overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, You have a bill that would codify uh, the right to an abortion into federal law. What are your expectations with that legislation? And what do you think is likely to happen to Roe versus Wade going forward? The Texas law shocked us so fundamentally because it was so extreme. In essence, it did ban abortion because it said that um, abortions abortions would be banned after six weeks, uh, which is before most women even know that they are pregnant. And it created a system of vigilante bounty hunters who could go after anybody who helped a woman seek an abortion and sue them for $10,000. So we felt that it was so important to put my bill out, the Women's Health Protection Act, which I put into uh, a bill in 2013 after we saw so many of these types of state laws starting in 2011, where they were dictating the width of clinic doors or requiring an unnecessary ultrasound or saying that a doctor needed to have admitting privileges at another hospital, which was completely unnecessary. These types of laws numbered in the number of 500. And we knew that this day would come where there would be a bill that would in essence, overturn Roe versus Wade. Following soon after this is a Supreme Court decision on this Mississippi case, which would ban abortions after 15 weeks. But we knew that with this Texas law, the time has come to put the Women's Health Protection Act on the floor, which would enshrine the protections of Roe versus Wade into law by establishing a federal statutory right for patients to receive and providers to provide abortion care free from medically unnecessary restrictions that single out abortion and impede access. And yet, as you well know, uh, the Senate is so divided uh, that a bill like that just is not going to get 60 votes uh, in, in the U.S. Senate. And Democrats, I think, see this as a real opportunity because it's a good issue for their constituencies. It mobilizes uh, Democrats to the polls, which could be good for the midterms. But I'm wondering, you know, in, in the community that you represent, there are plenty of folks, especially in the Asian American community, who are a little more conservative on some of issues like that, like abortion, for example. How do you like uh, think about that uh, when you're, uh, you know, thinking about how you're going to, you know, portray issues like this, vote on issues like this, and, and explain them to your constituents who may disagree with you? Well, let me tell you, this bill is all about freedom. It's about the freedom to make personal decisions about your own body with the people that you love and trust. And it's about stopping this control and manipulation by politicians who would want to put their dictates about your body uh, on you. 
there should be the freedom for a woman to make a decision about her own body. We don't know what kind of circumstance she might be in. She should have the ability to make that choice. I think everybody could agree on that. Congresswoman, you know, we're speaking a lot about women's issues. One of the issues and when it comes to women in politics is just getting enough women elected to office, convincing women to run. I mean, I was looking over your career trajectory and I mean, it's basically like the dream for, you know, getting women involved in politics. You start out smaller on the school board and you go higher and higher. So what was it that made you first run for school board, especially at a time when a lot of women weren't uh, serving on boards like that? I never thought I would be an elected official. It's because when I was growing up, I never saw anybody like me in elected office. So it didn't even enter into my mind that it was a possibility. It wasn't until I was living in the city of Monterey Park and there was an ugly anti-immigrant English only movement that I decided to get involved. They wanted English only on the signs in the city and only English books in the library. But the last straw was when they got a resolution passed saying that only English should be spoken in the city. So I got together with uh, um, a multi-ethnic group of people who said enough is enough. And we circulated all kinds of petitions, got thousands upon thousands of signatures and overturned the resolution. But it then became so apparent that the city council didn't represent the city that I ran for city council on a pledge of bringing people together and bringing about an appreciation of diversity. I did get elected, and uh, from there I went uh, from the state assembly to the Board of Equalization to then now in Congress. Well, and I want to ask you about that assembly uh, seat because, you know, you said when you were younger you didn't see anybody like you, it never crossed your mind, and yet you obviously had tremendous determination. You ran twice for the assembly and lost in 19, I think it was 94 and 98, and then you ran successfully uh, in 2001. What, what was it that made you keep going? I mean, a lot of people would have said, all right, I'm going to go do something else. Well, I was on the city council um, at the time, and I was able to turn things around in the city. I worked very, very hard on building bridges across communities and uh, on working on the quality of life issues that people from all ethnic backgrounds uh, uh, were, were concerned. Um, and so I thought I had something to contribute to the state of California. And in fact, there were very few Asian Pacific Islanders in the California state legislature at that time. So yes, I did try. And uh, thank goodness there were those who felt that I should continue to try despite the obstacles. And finally, in 2001, I did make it. Congresswoman, you just mentioned how you have an ability to build bridges with people. And in reading up on you, that's something that a lot of your colleagues say, that you can reach across the aisle and work with uh, different people of different ethnicities, ethnicities, people of different parties. Uh, Do you feel like there is still room for bridge building in Congress today? Yes, for sure. Um, There are issues that uh, do cross party lines. Uh, For instance, actually, I'm the founder and co-chair of the Congressional Creative Rights Caucus, uh, which um, uh, advocates for our creative industries. That is music, 
uh, films and television. Of course, being in LA, this is of great interest to me. Um, but uh, actually, I've been able to work with my colleagues across the aisle on this, particularly uh, the Republican colleagues from Georgia, where they have a very, very active film industry. And then with the colleagues from Tennessee, of course, who represent Nashville um, and the music industry. Uh, so yeah, we, were, we work hard together on making sure that they have uh, the copyright protections that they need. Well, let me ask you a specific case, because uh, just to the south in Orange County, there are two women recently elected, the first Korean-American women elected to Congress, both Republican, Young Kim and Michelle Steele. I imagine, I mean, I know, very different politics from yours, but do you feel, you know, a certain kinship with them as people who helped, you know, break a glass ceiling of sorts, uh, even though you're so different on politics? And, you know, what kind of relationship do you have with them? It is a cordial relationship. Uh I have to tell you something. Um, there was a time when AAPIs were totally invisible in Congress. Uh, there, we were so rare that if you even saw one walking down the hallway of the US Capitol, you just have to turn around and look, it was so unusual. Um, so we came from that situation when there were so few AAPIs in Congress to today where we have 21 AAPIs that are members of Congress, including those two. So I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that we actually have greater representation in Congress. And of course, we do come together on certain issues such as um, API Heritage Month. They also actually spoke out against um, the uh, API hate. So there was that as well. Yeah, and Congresswoman, along those lines, I mean, obviously, We've seen incidences of hate crimes against uh, Asian, Asian Americans go up in recent years. A lot of that, you could argue, due to President Donald Trump's approach towards the COVID vaccine and or excuse me, the COVID pandemic, calling it, you know, the the Chinese flu and things like that. I, you know, what lasting impact do you think that the Trump administration had on not just Asian Americans, but immigrants as a whole in this country? Trump had a devastating effect on our immigration system and certainly on all immigrants. And since AAPIs are 70% immigrant, of course, what he did had a terrible and catastrophic effect on immigrants. His usage of the terms China virus, Wuhan virus, and Kung flu are the things that contributed to the anti-Asian hate that caused 9,000 anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents. And even though we spoke up continuously about the fact that his rhetoric was causing the xenophobia, he not only did not back down, he actually used the terminology even more. But on top of that is all the hatred that he was trying to engender against all of our immigrant groups, including the Muslim travel ban, which was clearly a way of saying that Muslims uh, should not be accepted in this country. And that's why actually I was the author of the No Ban Act to reverse this. And thankfully it did pass out of the house. 
You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Katie Orr, and we're t- we've been talking with Judy Chu. She's been representing the Western San Gabriel Valley in Congress for the past 11 years. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio, and for more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. Congresswoman, we always like to go back uh, to where people came from and uh, find out about how they got to where they are now. And you were born in L.A. in 1953, and you grew up in South Central. I think it was uh, near 62nd and Normandy or somewhere around there, right? Um, yes. What was it like growing up there, as especially as an Asian-American family? I mean, uh, what was the neighborhood like? Uh, the neighborhood was primarily African-American, and there were um, a handful of uh, Asian immigrants that moved to that area. Uh, they uh, ran some of the local stores. Um, and um, actually, my grandfather had a little Chinese restaurant, a little bit of a hole in the wall, uh, but uh, he served Chinese food. And uh, he worked night and day and used that very expensive labor, his sons, to make ends meet. Uh, that's what what uh, I grew up in and um, my uh, father, uh, I do have to say, wanted to do anything but work in a Chinese restaurant after that. So he actually worked uh, in the uh, telephone company, Pacific Bell at the time. And you uh, went to UCLA. Um, you, that's where you met your husband, Mike Ng. Um, tell me, how did you get involved in politics on campus and how did you two, you know, tackle the world together? So I went to uh, the university not being particularly political. I actually thought that uh, I would be a computer scientist. I was a math major. And then I was walking across the quad as a freshman. In fact, it was my very first quarter. And somebody handed me a flyer for something called Asian American Studies. I looked at it. It was, in fact, experimental because at that time, Asian American Studies wasn't even established. But I thought, wow, this looks interesting. So I took the class and what I learned made a light go off in my head. Suddenly, everything made sense. Uh, Learning about the discriminatory actions that Congress had made uh, that uh, our lawmakers had enacted, such as the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, learning about the Japanese internment camps, um, made me understand why AAPIs were so disenfranchised in this country. And I also learned why my parents were so silent about the past, because there's a lot of pain from the past. And um, I learned about the many social service needs that there were in the Asian American community. And I tell you, um, it was so inspiring that I just took one Asian American studies class after another. Uh, And I decided to change my major eventually. Eventually I went and got a PhD in psychology because I thought I could better help people. Even then, I didn't think I could be an elected official. Has that uh, doctorate, I think it's a doctorate you have in psychology or a degree in yeah. any case. Yeah. Has that come in handy dealing with your colleagues in Congress? 
I must say it actually does. I just have a feeling for where people are coming from and um, what motivates them. I'm always looking at that. Uh, and I do think that um, EQ is actually more important than IQ. I think kind of having a feeling for where people are coming from gets you far farther in Congress than all the facts and figures that you may have in your head. And is that part of why you're able to build bridges, do you think? Well, I, I would hope so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> It's I, a softball I, question. I, <laughs> I would hope that that would play a role in it. That's for sure. I wonder, Congresswoman, um, because we should mention that your husband has held a number of offices, too. In fact, he's preceded you or excuse me, succeeded you in several offices followed on the you. city council. Yes, followed <laughs> you on the uh, in the city council and in the state assembly. Was there ever a moment when you guys sat down and like had a talk about who's you know, going who first would run for what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, my husband is uh, very, very talented and uh, intelligent, and he was actually as much involved in the AAPI community and also involved in social justice issues as I was. So actually, we were exactly on the same page on those things. Um, I do have to say he was in the middle of his uh, career as, as, as a lawyer, and so it was harder for him to run for office without taking a huge break from the career. So I think that the only reason that I ended up running for these offices was that I could do it. You know, I could do it and, and, and uh, be able to deal with um, with uh, the pressures that I had as well. Yeah. Last question, Congresswoman. Your Chinese name, I think, means beautiful heart. And I'm wondering if you think that fits you, because I think you also have a tiger heart from what I can tell looking at your bio. <laughs> well, it does mean beautiful heart. And um I would like to think that uh, that's what my parents would have liked me to have. Uh, and every time I think about the challenges that we have, for example, right now with our Build Back Better bill, that we should approach it with a beautiful heart that tries to make sure that the American people can have a better life. All right. Congresswoman Judy Chu, thank you so much for joining us on what I know is a very busy week for you back there in D.C. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Ernesto Aguilar, Vinnie Tong, Otis Taylor, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Katie Orr. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at one Katie Orr. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Clever, huh? Thanks for listening, everybody. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate. 
www.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.